you want a satisfying career and a fulfilling family life, this is the podcast for you. Join me, Joel Lulovich, and me, Lucy Dickens, as we share strategies and advice to help you keep your balls in the air. Welcome to the Juggle Podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm Jo. I'm Lucy. Welcome to the Juggle Podcast. If you're a long-time listener, welcome back. We appreciate that you choose to spend your time with us. And if you're new, welcome. We created this podcast to share with you stories and strategies to help you manage your juggle of career and family. We have got over 30 episodes already on our website and on iTunes, sharing stories of women managing the juggle, forward-thinking employers, and also tips from us and other thought leaders. So go on back and take a listen. And if you love it, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And come and join us in our Facebook group, The Juggle Community, where you can meet and chat to like-minded professionals who also happen to be parents. In today's episode, we're joined by Penny Rush. She is the Program Manager of Diversity and Inclusion at PwC, a global professional services firm that you've probably heard of before. (laughs) Penny's role at PwC is to promote gender equality, equal opportunity and diversity and inclusion. She's also a mother of two who are almost teenagers and is passionate about the impact that motherhood has on individual health and well-being, which led her to complete her master's thesis on this very topic. And she's also fluent in French and has run a London marathon. So she's been a very busy lady. In our conversation with Penny, we talk about how PwC encourages gender diversity and flexibility, including their all roles flex strategy and their in-depth internal research into how flexibility is put into practice in their own organisation. With 82% of their staff working flexibly in some form, PwC is a great example of an organisation committed to change. They have found that working flexibly correlates with positive engagement. The greater percentage of time that people work flexibly, the more engaged they were with their work. And Penny also shares some of her personal story about motherhood and career, including the positive impact that returning to work has had on her personally and her family relationships. It's a really lovely discussion and we hope you get a lot out of it. Hi, Penny. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. PwC, where you work, is very open about its focus on diversity and inclusion. And I know that you provided some statistics that say that 82% of your people are using some form of flexibility. Why do you think and why does PwC think flexibility in the workplace is so important? Sure. There are a number of reasons. I think it's important to understand what we mean by flexibility as well. So we have both formal and informal. I'm I'm sure this is consistent across many organisations. So a formal arrangement might be part-time, for example, or it might be regularly working different hours from normal business hours. But how the majority of our people work flexibly is on a very ad hoc informal basis. So it might be that they've decided that the work they have on for that day would be better served working from an environment that's not a busy open plan office. It might be a nice quiet space at home or they've got a particular commitment, whether it be kids or their own sporting commitment or a community commitment, a board commitment, that means they wish to shuffle their hours around. So, or if they're visiting a a client and it's easy to go direct from home and then back to home. So, it's all those little 
ways that we can work flexibly that make a big difference to people as they manage their day and they manage their week and they manage the things that aren't work and to have that freedom and be empowered through technology, absolutely, and the equipment that we have, but also through the culture and the appreciation that the people who work at PwC and the leaders have for being the most productive you can be. And for many people, that's different, even to the extent of some people are more productive in the morning and some are more productive in the evening. So it's trying to, while still absolutely understanding that productivity is important and performance matters, that that looks different for individuals on different days. So the principle of it is that you don't need to ask You need to inform and ensure that you're connected, um, but that you're empowered to choose the way that you need to work to be your most productive and to fit the other things into your life. So the importance then is that it enables the employees at PwC to be the most productive that they can be and to be happy employees, I take it. Happy employees and able to continue to work for us when different things happen in their lives that affect their availability, that it can be planned or completely unpredicted. So it could be through illness, it could be through injury, disability, through having children, you know, life stages and transitions so that that can all be managed and we retain people. So from a commercial perspective, being able to hold on to our, our talent is really a commercially valuable thing, but it also means that we are an organisation accessible to a more diverse population. Mm. So it helps us meet our workforce diversity targets as well as, you know, retention. So there's a whole range of reasons. I think being a creative organisation, that's what we like to think of ourselves now as we move beyond uh, crunching numbers, as a creative organisation with problem solving at the heart of most of what we do, asking people to conform to a nine-to-five day within a certain set of walls at a certain desk in the same place next to the same people every day isn't conducive to that. So it sounds like it's just as much about looking out for your people and what your people need as it is for what you can get out of that or the increased benefits that you have from productivity or related things. Absolutely. So, and I think there's a societal impact there as well. To, so I'll give you an example that just was in our internal newsletter yesterday, which was a, a female employee who'd worked in our Perth office um, for a number of years. She then became pregnant, so took parental leave, came back to work, realised that her daughter was showing signs of autism decided Mm -hmm. to take a leave of absence. During that leave of absence, she had another child who was also diagnosed with autism. And so the children were both sort of three or four. She really felt that work was important to her and she wanted to explore her options. So she got in touch with a former colleague and she now works flexibly part-time, so formally flexibly and also informally. So she said with two children with autism, you just never know how they're going to wake up and what sort of additional support they might need on a day-to-day basis. And there is no way she would be able to work without that sort of flexibility. And so it just makes sense and has a real impact on individuals. She is an EA and she's a superb EA and is able to do the work that she needs to do remotely and flexibly. So that's just one example. So good to hear. And last year, PwC conducted a roadshow you spoke about around Australia, talking to different teams within the organisation to look at different strategies that were important to staff to get the direct feedback from them. Can you tell us more about what that roadshow was and what you learned? 
Yes, so we had a new Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer start with us in July, Julie Mackay. She has a background of being the Executive Director for UN Women for 10 years and also working as the Gender Advisor to the Head of the Defence Force and doing other consulting work as well. She was familiar to PwC having sat on our Diversity Advisory Board. Anyway, she began and was tasked with both the internal diversity and inclusion of the firm alongside building a consulting practice with our clients. And so to really be able to deliver both of those and authentically go to the market and say, you know, we understand diversity and inclusion and these are the things that we're doing internally, it was important to get a baseline and understand where the firm was at. So we spent about three months, about a team of about seven, fortunately quite geographically spread, which was helpful, to both look quantitatively at at our data and our numbers, some data points we'd never looked at before, and then qualitatively looking at the experiences that people had working at the firm. So what is it like to work at this firm day to day? What are your interactions? What are your experiences of different policies? Policies. Where is it? Where are you thriving, or where are people thriving, and where are they actually not finding it as easy to work at PwC and, and having the most positive experiences of some of the benefits and policies and the way that we work? So, what were some of the biggest things that you learned from doing that? I think you know it's difficult to speak publicly. It was a very much a private, internal experience, but. I think one of the things that stood out from a quantitative perspective was the myth that turnover was affecting our diversity numbers, where in actual fact, some of our hiring processes were more the root cause of of that imbalance, if you like, as we got to more senior levels in the firm. So from a quantitative perspective, from a qualitative perspective, we learnt that while we have a market-leading reputation and we have market-leading policies, they are not consistently experienced by our people. And really what that then led us to in the strategy that responded to the challenges that we discovered through that current state review were to focus on three areas. And the first one is behaviours. If you look at an example of the flexible work policy, for example, we are very open with the fact that not every single person at PwC experienced the flexibility that they would like. Mm-hmm. Uh, So that was a fairly consistent experience across different aspects of work, that there is a real opportunity to shift behaviours and the way that people experience day to day. So not necessarily the big impacts or decisions or work that they're allocated, but the day to day experiences they have in, in living, working at PwC and trying to understand that while some people are thriving and developing, there are others who who for whom there's an opportunity and I guess a a risk of them leaving. So yeah, behaviours was the big one. Then we also looked at targets and transparency and ensuring that we were able to respond to some of the gaps in our numbers. Uh, And then leadership accountability and role models was the third area. I think it's fantastic that you took such a detailed, in-depth look into what's going on in your own business and not just, you know, in one little area and pretend that this is a representation of everything that happens, but you actually went through the whole company in the whole country and asked, you know, spent a significant amount of time looking at what was going on and what you could do to improve it. And I think that's something that, you know, you don't have to be a huge business to do that. Small businesses can face the truth and ask themselves the questions or ask their employees the questions more to the point because how we think people experience things isn't necessarily how they always do. But you touched on something that comes up for us on this podcast quite a lot, which is that it's all well and good to have these policies and procedures, but it's actually making sure that they're implemented and you suggest implemented in the same way across the organisation that's actually the hard bit. 
Yes, that, that's absolutely right. And I think it doesn't actually take really big changes often. So we've run, run some focus groups with different teams whose scores were particularly bad around their ability to work flexibly. And there were a couple of very small things that if they changed would make a big impact for that team. And they were along the lines of the three focus areas we, you just we mentioned to our strategy. Yeah. yeah. In terms of if your partner, so partners, the most senior people within the firm, if they're not ever working flexibly, if they're at their desk or at a desk um, from 7am till 9pm, they're saying no to personal commitments, mm-hmm. then it's very difficult for more junior members within the team to say that they want to attend family gathering or something that's important to them or even to regularly attend a sporting commitment because they're just not seeing it. And everyone at PwC has aspirations and career aspirations and want to be given all of the opportunities that they can be given. And unless you've got the leaders role modelling the behaviours, so that's one big one. Yeah. So there's a concept you've probably heard of, um, leaving loudly. Yes. Which is one, one of the things that we're promoting. We've put a sort of two-page fact sheet together on flexible working and one of the suggestions is that rather than hiding the fact that you're not at work by fudging a client meeting uh, or briefing your EA that they're to say you're at a very important client meeting, actually to say, I'm taking two hours out. I've had a big week and I need to go and walk in the fresh air and nature for two hours and I'll come back and I'll be refreshed or I haven't seen my mum for a really long time. She happens to be in town. I'm going to take that time. We're going to catch up or even just I need some time out. You don't need a reason to work flexibly. Everyone, it's about trust and getting the job done. And if that means, you know, it doesn't happen between nine and five, then that is totally fine. I love, I picked out a comment. You wrote an article recently that you posted on on LinkedIn. Thank you for sharing it with me. And you talk about this concept of all roles flex. And you said that it's it's about everyone being able to have flexibility, not just those who traditionally apply for it, like working mums like us, um, but anyone for whatever reason that they want that flexibility. And I particularly loved the statement, you don't need a reason to ask for flexibility. Managers need a reason to say no. And that really kind of, you know, hit home for me that you can have other things in your life that you're interested in and that you want to be involved in. The point is that managers need to be able to show why that flexibility doesn't suit the work needs and the job function that you're performing. Is, is that, have I interpreted that the way you intended it? Yeah, absolutely. It shifts the power and it puts the trust back into the individual to manage their workload and to deliver what they need to deliver while at the same time saying to them, we acknowledge you're a whole person, you're not just a working person and there are other things that you could and should be integrating into your day. And the point I was trying to make in that article as well was that there's a couple of ways of coming at it and I think the stigma that can come with working flexibility and not being present all the time is reduced if everyone works flexibly and you start looking for alternative solutions to manage the need for flexibility for those who are forced into it. So you're forced into it if you become a parent. You're forced into it if you're caring for elderly parents. You're forced into it with a bit more choice if you're an elite sports person and you need to factor in your training. But you're a better person if you are combining your work with other interests and passions. And the point I was trying to make was with our diversity and inclusion strategy, we're trying to say this isn't about advantaging certain groups at the disadvantage of others. This Mm. is about every individual reflecting on their life, what's most important to them and what they're passionate about and 
actively and proactively introducing that somehow. You're an example of this. You are a parent and you juggle your career and your family and you work flexibly and your all roles flex role. So what does this look like for you? Yes, so I work part-time. I work four days a week and this is the all roles flex element. When I went for the role a couple of years ago, I was asked what my flexibility needs were. Did they specifically ask you that? Yes. That's wonderful. Yes. You'd hope so in the diversity and inclusion team, but still, it is, it is supposedly a question that, no, it is a question that we should be asking everyone because that is the policy. It, all roles are flexible and flexible in different ways. You know, I think there are some parts of the business where it's more challenging than other parts of the business, but that doesn't mean that there can't be some flexibility a lot of the time. So that's an important point to make. But so I I said that I'd committed to training my daughter's netball team at 3.30 on a Wednesday. And so I wanted to be there for that. If I needed to work around to work full time, I could. But in an ideal situation, I'd take the Wednesday to not work. So it was interesting. I don't always like to say that I work part time because I have kids. And certainly since they've been at school, they're at school most of a Wednesday. So it's more about mental health, about getting some exercise in and actually having some time to do those things so that you free up the time for family as well. So a lot of that life administration. Life administration. I play some tennis with some girlfriends once a fortnight. I mean, what a joy, what a privilege to be able to have that in my life. And that's why I say to people who don't have kids, you can have that in your life as well. In my team, you know, my colleague, he says, I'm a gay single man with no kids, but I work part time because I want to. Mm. So he doesn't work on Fridays. And that's exactly the type of reflection and decision making that we hope people would make. It's funny that we've come to a place where people are just expected to work 40 hours a week, unless you have children, really. I mean, there are some other exceptions to the rule, but generally, if you're not working full time, it's probably because you've got kids. And it's funny that that has just become the norm. And if you're not doing that, then it's, oh, well, something different going on here. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's either you must have lots of money and you don't need to work full time or what's odd about you. When you mentioned the question that they had about your flexibility needs and you reflected that you could manage full-time if you had to, but you'd like to have a Wednesday off. How does PwC go about advertising job roles? Do they do it on the basis of this is full-time or this is part-time or do they not really kind of stick that in a job advert anymore? That's a really good question and and something I might have to take on notice to some extent. (laughs) I think they generally do state whether it's full-time or part-time, but they would never remove someone from a process Mm -hmm. because they had stated that they were only available for a certain number of days. And I think there's more of a generic statement on the ads as well that we do work in a flexible, we promote flexible working and Mm -hmm. we actively encourage diverse members of the population to apply. The reason I ask is because it's a good point. Yeah, well, it's been discussed by us and some other guests before along the lines of, you know, if you're a woman particularly who's looking to return to the workplace, perhaps you've, you know, had some time out with the children, even a a shorter amount of time, but you're looking for a new job and you're applying for roles. And the, the point was made, don't be scared off applying for a role that has it stated that it's full time. And I thought that that was a really good point to make. And I, I wondered if that was sort of something that's taken up by PwC and how it goes about its recruiting. It might be something I follow up on. It's, yeah. a, it's a great <laughs> suggestion. Uh, but I, I definitely agree with that advice that as long as you're prepared to work 
four days. This is another thing that comes up for us as well is that if you're working four days, is it kind of you're just squeezing five into four? It's going to be my next question. So glad you raised it. (laughs) And is four days, you know, a genuine part-time role? I mean, from my experience, it definitely is. I do see it as a bit of a buffer though, because if it means I have to leave earlier on one of the other days, I can very easily work for a couple of hours on a Wednesday and catch it up. So I do really appreciate that flexibility around it. Interestingly, we did for the first time a few months ago advertise a job share role, which we'd not done before. We, we certainly have people working job share, but it's generally something that evolves organically. Yes. Whereas we tested hiring, putting out the ad for two people to work three days a week each. And that so far has gone, that, that hiring process has gone really well. And it is a challenge, particularly for our senior, the more senior you get and the more responsibility you have and the greater the relationships with clients, part-time work is challenging. And as much as it's about the behaviours of the individual who works part-time and ensuring that out-of-office is set, that they don't pick up their mobile phone, that they have agreed processes with their team as to what might need to be escalated and what might be the urgent call that you receive. And we've actually been discussing, because there is commentary all the time, I'm sure in the marketplace, I'd be interested in what else you've heard, but is when people are on their non-work days, you get this language such as I'm covering, I'm filling the gap, I'm taking on the extra load, this kind of language where really that should be flipped, first of all, from a workload management perspective, but also from a, well, how can we manage this differently and how can this be a development opportunity for a more junior person in the team to formally make the decisions that the person who has a non-work day would be making if they were there and to fully understand where escalation has to take place and can step in for that client relationship as well. And so instead of it being, I'm covering, I'm stepping up and this is part of my development plan for promotion down the track. It's funny you raise that because we just had a very similar conversation with a, a guest who we recorded earlier on about that exact thing in the context of parental leave. So when we go on parental leave, seeing that as an opportunity to help other people to develop their skills and to step up and take on some more of that responsibility. So you're right. You say that this is actually something that happens with not just on these longer periods of leave, but with people who are working flexibly too. Yeah. And to acknowledge it and recognize it rather than it almost being an unspoken situation. And the way that you described it, stepping up as opposed to covering, because covering implies a negative, you know, as in... I'm doing your work. Yeah, I'm doing your work and you're not here and, you know, you should be getting this done and rather you're leaving it for me to pick up the slack. I agree with you to change the mindset around it and make it a positive and and a true benefit to the other people is a great idea. So your situation has changed a number of times as your children have grown up. You've changed jobs and roles, gone from full-time working, full-time mum to full-time working and other things in between, quite a lot of changes. Can you talk us through these transitions and how things have changed for you? Yes, sure. So, I mean, everyone's got special circumstances, I suppose, but for us, the circumstances where we just returned from a four-year period overseas and so I wasn't in a permanent job and we were trying for a family. So I started a master's degree and I was working part-time in a contract sort of position when I first fell pregnant and did go back for one um, so long service leave cover and managed the childcare with a, with a neighbour who was doing a similar sort of thing. But then that employment opportunity sort of closed off as it was a contract position. So then accidentally had the second baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did always plan to have another, but just not quite 
That's quickly. Our first was six months old. Um, <laughs> so that compounded things. And, and my husband was just starting out as a baby barrister at the same time, which was always challenging from an income perspective. Mm-hmm. Loved the study. It was a real outlet. And we used some different forms of care. We didn't have family regularly, but we had um, family daycare and managed it that way. So then I was working part-time and I think happy to share that from a relationship point of view, it was pretty challenging at that time because I was you know, had quite strong career ambitions. There was not a huge network around at home. The domestic work fell to me and the care fell to me and the, and the work fell to my husband and because he was trying to escalate his career as quickly as possible, you know, taking opportunities that took him overseas. You know, so it was one of those crazy times. You know, we had the second baby on the dining room table in a bassinet because we were in this tiny house. Anyway, so that sort of continued for a little while. And when our youngest started prep, I thought I'm ready for a bigger challenge and something back in the workforce. And so took a job full time. And interestingly, that resulted in a much more equitable situation with my husband and I. I mean, it's not surprising, I suppose, but sometimes it does take that sort of forced situation to then start to get some more equality around the care of the kids and the domestic responsibility. So during that time, while you were primarily at home and your husband was working and doing long hours and overseas and all the rest of it, how did you come to terms with that, with the fact that this is my life right now and it might not always be this way, but maybe this isn't quite how I would want it to look? necessarily. How did you come to terms with that? I wish I'd been so philosophical. Well, I think I actually probably addressed it a little bit through um, some, the therapy of study. So I was studying a master's in public policy and had quite a few free subjects to choose and was able to put a thesis together and and looked at the impact of having children on women and and therefore the instances of postnatal depression and the experience of maternal and child health nurses. So I think that, <laughs> that was a really practical and therapeutic way of trying to understand what I was experiencing and trying to put some structure to it and also feel a sense of satisfaction of contributing to that academic debate. And you had that thesis published didn't you? I did, yes, in the Maternal and Child Health Journal in in the US. So I think just going through that process and understanding that there was some value in what I was doing and it had some real life implications was really, really helpful. I know it's just, it's funny when you reflect back because I didn't consciously think I'm going to go and get a full-time job because that will even things up. I just felt that it wasn't the right balance for me at the time. And Interestingly, you know, within a few months, the resentment that I'd been holding, which I didn't even realise I was holding, I don't think, towards my husband just sort of dropped away and our our couple relationship just flourished. So, you know, it's just such a curious thing, that whole transition. And so that's what really led me to working with the Australian Institute of Family Studies on the impact on children and families on different topics. So just worked my way way through it. And I think that's really led me to diversity and inclusion as well from a gender perspective initially, and then moving to more broadly, you know, where are the inequalities in opportunity for different groups? And how can we try to smooth that transition for all parents because certainly, I mean, my husband loved, you know, he, he gave me such positive feedback when he was starting to do the lunches and, the, you know, the school notices and that connection. I mean, it was just so evident for him, that connection that he was starting to build. I think it was about the lunches, more about the connection. Um, <laughs> with, 
<laughs> with the kids and really, you know, being at the school drop-off. And yet, until it was a requirement that he had to fulfil, his sense of responsibility lay with the breadwinning. So yes. for a long time, I've said, I'm not here about women's rights in the workforce. I'm here for men's rights in the home mm. because there is so much stigma as well for them, for men not wanting to be too gender binary about it, but secondary carers doing the earning and not having the social right to be at home. And we all know that's not a new phenomenon, but if we can reduce that stigma and encourage parental leave, for example, which is what we do here at PwC, then then that will help women also. I'm so glad you raised this because I think it's such an important conversation to have. And I also think it's one that a lot of people probably don't talk about publicly because who wants to say that, you know, I realized in hindsight that I was resenting what was going on. It's not something that people want to admit. I mean, I've been there on the flip side of that. Before we had children, I was doing all the home stuff. And it was when we had my daughter that my husband was kind of forced into it. And then things So I guess it's kind of the opposite story to what you explain, but it's not something that's spoken about. It's kind of just this expectation that you just get on with it and you just do what you do and that you just accept it. And so much of that is because society's created it. Yeah. (laughs) We feel this sense of wanting to work and to have our husbands helping at home or whatever it might be, but we're also trapped in this idea that society has conditioned us for so many years that predominantly our mums will be at home working or we as the mum will be at home working in the home and the dads will be out earning the money and, and whatever it might be. And, you know, even in my own situation where I'm the main income earner for the family, I will still have those moments where I'm like, oh, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> Intellectually, it doesn't matter. And I don't care. But then there's something about this 30 years of, oh God, 40 years of conditioning that is, um, (laughs) I'm approaching that big number any moment now. Um, So it's on my mind. It's all that 40 years of conditioning that is making you think the way that you're thinking. So with all of this, Penny, all of this change, do you feel that your career goals have changed since having kids? Absolutely. But I, I don't know that I ever really had a really strong, clear idea of where I would be in 10, 15, 20 years time, which, you know, fortunately, because this role didn't exist 20 years ago, (laughs) I suppose. But I guess I'm one of those people who follows passion and interest and opportunity more than setting the ultimate goal and working towards it. I mean, I guess I've always wanted to be in a role where I was collaborating and I was with people and I was making lives better and having a a social impact. So I, I suppose. I can see that back when I was still in year 10, 11. So I suppose you could say that that broad goal has remained. But in terms of 20 years ago, thinking I'd like to be at PwC, although funnily enough, in year 12, we had a PwC person come to talk to us about careers and interviews and things like that. So some sense of full circle. But who knows what the next 10 years is going to look like. But I'm excited about the opportunities. So with the benefit of hindsight and looking back on your journey, and I always like asking this question to um, (laughs) parents who have children who are a little bit old, not you being older, but your children being older, because my daughter's only two. So your children are school aged. So I always like asking this question. So what's one piece of advice that you would give to yourself then, you know, when you were a new mum wanting to continue your career and now with your children being of school age, what's one thing that you might do differently or a piece of advice that you would give to yourself? Yes. So my kids are 11 and 12 now. It's a good age. You can look forward to it. Um, (laughs) At one stage, I thought that if I'd been in a role 
and then had the kids and had the security of parental leave and then returning to a role that would have been helpful. And I think in my personal situation, it would have been helpful to have that structure and colleagues present. But at the same time, if I'd had that, I wouldn't have done the study that I did. It's led me to this role. Oh, people always say, you know, just live in the present. Uh, <laughs> so maybe that's a small piece of advice. But I think maybe just an observation that you made earlier about trying to be philosophical about it and that this isn't forever. Forever. And maybe trying to build a bit more of a network around me as well. That's another something that's been on my own mind for a very long time about the social isolation that our autonomous family units make us experience these days rather than having more of a a community in which we live and connections that can get us through those times when we're spending a lot of time at home with little people. I so agree. You know, we we used to have these multi-generational families that were involved. We had very tight-knit neighbourhoods. You know, everyone on the street knew everybody else. All of those kinds of things that we don't have anymore. Lucy and I are trying to combat that a little bit by the Facebook community that we've created for, you know, mums doing the juggle. And there's a lot more of that kind of online things and we we try to bring it into the real world by having meetups as well. I agree, you know, whether it's the, the family, social or professional networks, you've got to have those. We're social beings. Hmm. So two of the questions that we like to ask of all of our guests. And the first is, what words do you live by? Do you have a mantra? Well, I did actually work on this one time at a retreat and I'm trying to think what it is now. I did have a video for a really long time. But it was something along the lines of raw and real. So I think trying to be an authentic person and bring my whole self to work and that might be a bit too much sharing for some people sometimes but to really sort of have that foundation in yourself of values and not being afraid to live them and be them. That's lovely and if you were to give one piece of advice to employers like PwC who want to increase gender diversity specifically for parents what would you suggest that they do? So the big picture hard piece of advice that I would offer, which is something that we'll get to at PwC, is to think about the model of work that you have and how appropriate that is for the current workforce demographic. Can you expand on that a bit more? What do you mean by the model of work? Yes. So at PwC, for example, the partnership is supported through client relationships and revenue and what is currently rewarded, although this is shifting with our DNI strategy in terms of accountability for other aspects of management beyond revenue. And you generally have one partner per client. And so if you are wanting to take parental leave or work part-time, that is very difficult. And there is still a you know significant old school population where you have to be available 24-7 for a client. You can't have conversations with clients about working in a different way or having multiple touch points within the firm. So while we work with All Roles Flex and that has been a phenomenal transformation over the past couple of years to really reach peak inclusivity for different demographics, there has to be some sort of shift as to how that reward and recognition model works. Does that make sense? Yeah, especially for us lawyers who are used to time billing targets and reward being based on whether or not you meet those targets. You know, we're not the only industry that are like that and there's definitely room for some improvement. 
Yeah, and I think to look at a more straightforward and simple action that organisations could take is to simply look at the advocacy that's offered to women with talent, women who have been identified as the potential leaders and what structure sits around them and compare that to the structure that might sit around um, the similar level of male talent because a lot of it is informal and unconscious and trying to formalise that and structure that a little bit to even up the opportunity. Good advice. So thank you so much for joining us. And what we're going to do is if anyone listening wants to get in touch with you, we're going to share your LinkedIn profile in the show notes to the episode. So if you have more questions for Penny, I'm sure she wouldn't mind if you got in touch and and asked them directly and if you connected with her on LinkedIn. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Penny. It's been great chatting to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to continue this conversation that we've had with Penny, you can do it in our Facebook group, The Juggle Community. You can ask us questions or ask the other women in the group questions or perhaps just share your takeaways from what Penny was discussing. And of course, make sure you subscribe so that you receive notification of each of our new episodes. And while you're there, leave us a quick rating and review. Thanks for listening. Happy juggling. Happy juggling.